0: Bombus's mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you are also giving to someone in need. You're also getting the most comfortable socks, shirts, and underwear we've ever worn including my all-time favorite, Bombas No-Show Socks, specially engineered to never fall down. So far, Bombas customers like you have donated over 50 million items of essential clothing. That is incredible. Go to bombas.com slash legends and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot legends for 20% off. Bombas.com legends. Quick disclaimer, there is some fairly creepy Swiss horror this week. We try not to get too graphic, but if that's not your thing, or if you hate spiders, especially if you hate spiders, you might want to check out the post on MythPodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a Swiss horror story. You'll see how home renovation shows might unleash an ancient monster on your village and how you might want to get that mole in your face checked out, especially if it's growing to consume your face. The creature this week is a bathroom monster from Japan who's somehow worse than the greasy little guy who dines on filth. This is Myths and Legends, episode 276, Along Came a Spider. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. The story this week is… kind of a literary fairy tale. It's a Swiss novella by Jeremias Goffleff. It was written in 1842, but it has some fairy tale elements. I felt like it was a better fit with this show than fictional, because it reads like so many of the fairy tales we've talked about. We'll jump into the story in the 1800s, in Switzerland. Everyone just had a big dinner to celebrate a baptism, and they're sitting back, noticing some… strange architecture. "'Hey, so I have a question,' the godmother said after dinner. "'She was a friend of the family, "'and they were all reclining at the dinner after a christening.' "'Grandpa sighed. (sighs) "'Is it about the black post?' "'People always wanted to know about the black window post.' "'The godmother said, yeah. "'I mean, it was weird. "'She wasn't the only one who thought it was weird, right?' One of the cousins spoke up. Yeah, she had been coming to this house for years, and she wondered that too. The pole was a window pole. In the middle of the room. It is a half meter away from the wall, tops. Grandpa defended the bold architectural choice. Yeah, but there's a window on that wall. It just doesn't make any sense, another cousin chimed in. It's... uh, There's more to it than just aesthetics, Grandpa said. Taking a sip of the coffee that another family member brought in. Yeah, there's resale value, the first cousin said. Taking a sip of the coffee yourself. You know, enough of them were here. If he wanted that pole out, they could just get the pole out, no problem. Free up a lot more of the room and Grandpa cut her off. No? No thank you. The room (laughs) chuckled a... Grandpa was acting weird. Then, they noticed. The coffee was in waves in his mug. His hand was trembling. The coffee mug thudded on the table, splashing a bit. He tried to calm himself. Take deep breaths. This was a happy day. He didn't intend to talk about the pole today. The room was about to say that he didn't have to talk about the pole it obviously upset him, but Grandpa took another deep breath. He was getting on in years. No one remembered now. He had been so young then. The time had come. Someone else had to know. The room was more serious now. Everyone leaned in. No. No what? Grandpa picked his coffee back up he would tell the story as he heard it. From the only survivor, his hand was steady now. That story began over 400 years ago. Two years William stood before the table filled with food. Two years. They built the castle that surrounded them on a hill. They weren't masons or builders or architects. The people were farmers, peasants. While they built, their wives worked their hands raw. Their children crawled through the fields. The men dragged stones up from the quarry, trees up from the forest. They chipped and chopped and hewed, they built a castle on a hill. Hans von Stauffen. he was a knight of the Teutonic order. He had come from Bohemia or somewhere farther. They didn't know. They only knew that he wasn't from their village. He wasn't from their home, but he ruled it. His father's father's father had held the land a couple of generations ago. The people never knew him or his children because they never lived here. And. That was fine with the people, they paid him or his family or whoever whatever taxes they deemed were fair. And since the family barely remembered the land, that was almost nothing. No one thought they were lucky enough to live forever without a lord. Though they never imagined they would be cursed enough for it to be Sir Hans von Stoffeln. He rode in to claim his father's land and the next month ordered a castle. William remembered the man who stood up to speak out. Von Staufflin calmly got down from his horse, walked over, put his gauntlet on, and beat the man's teeth out of his head in the village square. Work started the next day. The two years had been worse than any of them could imagine. From dawn until dusk, in the heat of the summer and the ice of the winter, they dragged the boulders up from the quarry. They hewed them in the lightning storms, according to the night's exact specifications. He would sit in the shade of his pavilions, drinking with his friends. Some mornings they would decide that, yeah, they'd like to have double the amount of work done today. The friends would laugh and collar the foreman, telling him that the workers would go without breaks and be whipped at the slightest infractions. So many went home with lashes on those days. After two years of whippings, Knights rolling boulders down hills for fun, yelling after the fact for the men to get out of the way, and the knights sicking the dogs on the workers, chasing them across the fields for laughs and then whipping them for not working, the farmers finished the work. The knight had his castle. Taxes would be steep, but God was good. In the two years, no one had starved, and it was May. They would be able to plant and harvest and survive the winter, it had been close, but they could rebuild. It was a challenging time, friends, Hans von Stofflin, the knight, announced to the room. But we did it. We built the castle. William thought that that particular pronoun was far too inclusive, but smiled along with the other farmers. A hear, here" went up from the back, from the throat of one of the more sycophantic villagers. It, it was finished. There was no point in squabbling over credit now. They all had lives to get back to. I brought you all here so you could celebrate in the castle. You all have a hard month in front of you, the knight said. William's neighbor spoke up. It was nice of the knight to recognize that. It was nearly time to plant the first of their crops and... (laughs) The knight cut him off first. Who told you you could speak? All eyes looked to the ground. The knight froze for a minute, and then he and his friends broke out laughing. Sorry, sorry, he couldn't resist. Of course, of course they could speak here. This was their feast. But he did need to correct one minuscule misconception. They thought that the work the knight was referring to was their farm work. That was not the case. The room fell silent. Only the crackling of the torches could be heard. The knight continued. The stables were at the foot of the hill, as they knew. There wasn't enough room inside the wall on the hilltop for the horses as well. William knew. He had been on the team that built the stables inside the wall and then tore them down and rebuilt them at the foot of the hill on the knight's whim. The knight said that he had some friends over the other day. and the walk up from the stables, even in late spring, oof, that was a hot one in the sun. He needed it to be shadier. William could see where this was going, he buried his face in his hands. His neighbors were not as quick. That means I require some trees, and not like the little trees that take years. That path must be completely shaded in a month, the knight stated. The farmers exchanged glances, and in a month? Shaded? How? That was impossible. I can imagine you think that this task is beyond anyone, but it's... it's Really quite simple, the knight informed them. The farmers simply needed to take full-grown beech trees from the Moonenberg, uproot them, and replant them here, on Barhagen Hill. One of the farmers dared to step forward. That would require carts, horses, whole teams. That was nearly, what, 70, 80 trees? Better be safe and call it 100, the knight said, reclining at the table. The farmers were frozen they couldn't believe what they were hearing. You all think too little of yourselves. You built a castle. That is usually done by entire teams of masons and architects, but you all did it in two years. A month to move a handful of trees was nothing. It's, it's not nothing, my lord. William stepped forward. He knew that he was taking his life in his hands, but it had to be said. The knight had to know. We've put off tending our farms. We've eaten our own stockpiles over the past two years. If we can't farm this year, our families will starve. It is only by God's grace that the knight cut him off. God's grace. God's. It was his grace, the knight's grace, they should be more concerned about. His voice grew sharper. He was far less forgiving than God, and his punishment would come now not in the life to come. Mastiffs weren't quite a thing yet, but a mastiff-sized hound sensed the slack on his leash. Rose, the farmer stepped back. You all have so much in this village, and my family, my family's been good to you. For years, you just paid a few taxes and tributes to some far-off lord and did as you pleased on our land." You have houses and wives and children, a village. Where I come from, the peasants have their lives and not much more, and they are grateful. I don't want to have to teach that lesson to you people, but I can. You should consider everything you have as gifts from my family, and I'd hate to take it all away. The men stood, frozen. Let me be clear, if that path isn't shady in a month, I'll flay every last one of you, and my dogs will hunt your wives and children for sport. Enjoy your meal, the knight gestured to the table. The farmers, the men, lost their appetites. Some were going to be sick. All of them crowded around the door, eager to get out of the castle, while the knight laughed with his buddies. William did throw up. He made it to the bottom of the hill, though. He didn't want to invite another whipping from the knight. The farmers stood there, commiserating. What were they going to do? He couldn't do that, right? Flay them and hunt their families? That was sick. There had to be someone they could turn to, right? The king? The pope? William wiped his mouth. One of his good friends came through the village last year. The knight was a cousin of the king, a distant one, And even if the king would listen, how would they get an audience in a month? And what if the knight feigned contrition, but then turned around and punished them worse? It literally does not get worse than flaying you and hunting your families. A voice came up from the back. The men turned. Who said that? He had somehow ridden up undetected on a black horse. He was tall and lithe. The stranger wore a green overcoat and cap. With a red feather, his skin seemed to glow in the moonlight, and his red mustache and goatee crackled. I, I'm sorry, I couldn't help it over here. The huntsman said, uh, "You know, because of the weeping and the vomiting." The men said they appreciated his concern, but there was nothing he could do. Now, uh, be fair, please. The huntsman said, "I am of the opinion that if someone is as distraught as you good men clearly are." You should unburden yourself on the first kind soul that will listen. Frankly, you don't know what help I'm capable of providing. For all you know, I have a whole team with wagons and ropes at the ready, just looking for a good use. The men looked at each other. The huntsman said, Okay, I have all of those things. You, you guys don't appear to be big on subtext. My team can take your beech trees all the way from the base of the hill and plant each one of them, the huntsman smiled. His mustache seemed almost a spark now. One of the men, Martin, stepped forward. Well, if he had all those things, then they could make a deal of it. What did he want in return? As the huntsman smiled, William realized something. They never told the man about the beech trees spoke about the other details of the job I don't ask for much just one unbaptized child Flames seemed to sprout from his mustache at the mention of the cost now William knew the good book said to resist the devil and he will flee from you but if that wasn't quite working out it didn't hurt to do things the other way around he took off in a run toward home and you know The Middle Ages get some things wrong, and I'm personally not big on superstition. That being said, if a stranger approaches you on the road at night and tries to purchase a child off of you, it's a good idea to put some distance between you and that situation. Every farmer in their group felt that same way. They broke off in a run toward home, leaving the huntsmen at the crossroads alone. Behind them, they heard a groan. Everyone always got so touchy when it came to offering up a child. Whatever. When they changed their minds, he would be here. Third night from now, waiting on their final answer. And what did you say? Christine asked William and the rest of the men when they got to the part about the night. William asked, what could he say? No. You say, no, Christine cut him off. He's had you all for two years. This is the most important month. If you don't work the fields this month, there won't be a harvest. If there's not a harvest, we'll starve. He's a bully. You should have stood up to him. William said that that wasn't all. The men told the women about the green man. And you ran from him too, Christine asked. Really? You didn't think to stay there and try to bargain with him? Come up with something other than a child? If they did make a deal with the devil, it wouldn't affect their souls. It was for a shady walk. They just messed this up in every conceivable way, didn't they? Christine didn't find anyone who really agreed with her, or if they did, they weren't telling because they were wailing. The people in the room were praying, weeping, and pleading with God for a sign. Christine rose, rolled her eyes, and went to bed. She met William when he was pressed into service by the king to fight in a foreign war in a strange land. Her land, Germany, not that far, or terribly strange. She came from farmers there, too. William was a young soldier who was quartered in her house. Glances turned to smiles, turned to words, turned to... more. William never saw action of the fighting persuasion. The war was over before he left their farm, but Christine was pregnant before that. They were married before she began to show. She went back with him to Switzerland. That was 20 years ago. The war, their passion, the intensity of youth, that had been the best time of their lives. He apparently left that confident, brave man back in Lindau. Her husband in Switzerland was a man crushed by his perceived responsibilities. Every adventure was a burden. Every opportunity he knew to be a failure before he began. So, why try? In her absence, the men decided that tomorrow morning they would start moving the trees. What other choice did they have? It went badly. The knight demanded a tree planted at the foot of the hill the next day. Two days later, they still had nothing. They had more snapped axles than a game of Oregon Trail. Someone nearly lost an arm to a pickaxe mishap, a horse died, just died when it was trotting along the road. Things were not going well. The knight, surrounded by his buddies, said that if things didn't pick up, he would have to start being a little more creative with his motivations. It was the evening of the third day and Christine was at the work site. The story says she wasn't one to just hang around at home. She packed the dinners and brought them to the men who were struggling to plant a full-grown tree at the foot of a hill She sat and watched the sun go down. This whole thing was a disaster, so she couldn't help even if she wanted to. Then, as soon as it was dark, a peal of lightning lit up the sky. Hey, everybody, the group heard, and instantly saw the green man sitting atop his horse. Okay, now, have you all made a decision on the... Oh, come on, don't run away. The entire work team, as before, took off in a run. Back at William's house, the group was catching their breath. Wow, near miss there. They weren't followed, good. Well, we'll just call that a day. We'll leave the horses there, they'll be fine. They just wouldn't go back there and deal with the devil. Just then, as William was searching the heads in the room, he spoke up. Uh, Where's Christine? Thunder shook the worksite. Christine standing alone when all the rest of the villagers had run, approached the green man. The green man grinned. He liked dealing with decisive people. Also, it was really hard to come to agreements with people when they freaked out and took off the moment you showed up. Christine stepped forward. What was his offer? The green man smiled. Lightning struck somewhere off in the forest. The green man said that she knew that from the farmer's discussions ad nauseum over the past few days. There was no more talk. No more deciding. He had many places to be. She needed to give him an answer. Now, Christine looked back. No one from the town. They had all run. No one was coming for her. No one to bear this with her. She took a deep breath. She had two children to think about and herself, and she thought she knew a way out of this. She nodded. Okay. She would agree. But, if the town later decided that they weren't down for this whole thing, she couldn't help that. The green man smiled. His mustache sparked again. Her agreement was all that he needed. She nodded. Okay, so how did they do this? Did she have to sign a contract in her own blood or something? The green man grimaced, ew, no, first, gross, second, this was the Middle Ages, did she know how dangerous it was to get even a small cut? And he wanted the people around to pay up, no, all he required was a kiss. And if you're thinking, that's not okay, requiring a kiss as part of a business contract, well, I mean, it's the devil. Christine took a deep breath, closed her eyes, and felt it. It was the slightest peck on her cheek, but it took her breath away. Not in the good way, though, that you like. A lightning bolt of pain shot through her skin and implanted itself into her skull. She gasped and dropped to her knees. When she opened her eyes, she was alone. Character just made a deal with the devil. How could that possibly go wrong? Well, you'll see. But that will be right after this.
1: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash podcast. That's indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Christine, where were you? William demanded. You left me, she said, a shaking finger pointing. Then it swept the room. You all left me. You left me to deal with the green man to save your village. Our village, a man corrected. Christine turned. Oh, okay. Now it's our village. Wow. Great of you to let me know now. Now I'm included when I bargained to save it. Thank you. You know, I thought, for a bit there, just, you know, my entire adult life, that I wasn't accepted here on account of me not being born here. You know, with all the whispers and exclusions and slurs. But now it's our village. Oh, so wonderful. So nice of you. Thank you. The room fell silent. She said she made the deal. She made it on behalf of all of them. All they had to do was cart the trees to the base of the hill, leave them, and they would be planted. She cut their work by like three quarters. But, but the green man, the people said, requires a child, yes. Thanks to the past two years of stress and famine, there are no women with child in the village. The life in question is still theoretical. And when the time comes, I have a plan for that too, Christine said. The men stepped forward. William, reluctantly, They heard her. What should they do? The work hummed along after that. The carts were strong and reliable, the ground firm. The trees came out of the ground whole like centuries of dirt with sand. The team left the trees piled on their side at nightfall. And by morning, the trees were upright on the hill. The villagers were smart enough not to be curious. They didn't want any more to do with the green man than they had to. The knights of the castle were not so fortunate. Well, their squires weren't. They sent the young men out to spy on the workers after sunset. They were found the next morning. Their faces contorted in a look of sheer terror. They were dead in a ditch. One of the knights went out the following night. He was fully armed. He and his horse were found three days later, in a swamp, face down. Armor melted in places, like they had been attacked by a searing lance. Only one managed to see what happened in the night. A pious young boy, no older than seven, was out after dark, lost in the woods. He prayed for safety and, seeing a light through the trees, chanced upon the green man's team at work severely undercutting the ominous tone of the story, the team was, quote, fiery squirrels. The green man was there, too, riding goat back. The boy prayed and ran in the other direction, and when he made it home the following morning, told of everything he had seen. a nameless dread. The villagers finished his walk nearly a year ago, on time, a few days early, actually. The walk up the hill was beautiful now, the knight admitted. Cool, too, but no one wanted to use it. Hans von Stauffen avoided the walk. Just being in the presence of the trees filled him with, quote, a nameless dread. He didn't know how the villagers had managed to sour this for him. It definitely wasn't his deep-seated guilt for using his own people as slave labor at the threat of physical violence. Uh, he wasn't going to do it, anyway. Flay them and hunt their families and all that. It took so much food to help run a castle, and he needed their labor. Still, it, it worked. Even if he now hated the walk for no apparent reason, he didn't mean to let it go so far the castle, and everything else. It's just, his buddies were there, and he wanted to look tough. He had avoided fighting in the Crusades, unlike his friends, so he felt inadequate. He might have squeezed a bit too hard, but whatever. He got his castle and his walk, and the harvest looked like it would be better than ever. Everyone won. Then, shouts came up from the village. The priest rushed toward the house. He made it there even before the midwife. He shook his head. This was folly. They were playing with forces they couldn't comprehend. Christine said that that might be the case, but the priest would be helping them because he didn't want to see a child given to the devil. She had to steady herself. When the pain shot through her face, the priest cocked his head and looked at her. Had she always had that mole on her cheek? kind of looked like it was a growing black mark. Christine said yes, brushed her hair of the spot on her face where the green man had given her a kiss, and said that she would wait outside. The child, that was merely theoretical when the deal was being made, became real, and when she was crying in her home, the moment she was born, the priest baptized her. The storm outside stopped the second the priest christened the child. The people celebrated the birth and their outsmarting of the devil. They had done it once. How difficult would it be to do it all the time, forever? Besides, the devil would get tired. How long could he possibly try to keep going after a soul? The answer was, of course, forever. He's the devil. What else does he have going on? While they celebrated, though, Christine writhed outside, pain snaking through her skull and the rest of her body. The story said it was like a wasp stinging into her bone marrow. She dragged herself home and, looking into the water basin, noticed that the dot on her face, the one that had been there since the green man had kissed her, had grown. It had branched out in eight different directions. It had the appearance of a spider. Christine, no, the priest said, speed walking to his third christening. His job was so super important now, and after the last time, she was really proving to be a liability to these kids. Christine said that she lived in constant pain. The green man, the green man knew what they were doing. He wouldn't tolerate it forever, or even for long. Something bad was coming, please. Priest needed to give the green man the child. The priest laughed. He would die before he did that. He nodded to the burly man at his right, his sexton bodyguard, who now went with him to these after Christine nearly stopped him the last time. The sexton was not as restrained as the priest. He grabbed Christine and twisted her arm behind her back, taking her with them. When they made it to the house in the village, he tossed her a good distance away Slam the door, and Christine heard the door bar drop. Another christening was imminent. She knew this because her face and head and body throbbed. For the past two months, sleep had fled from her. Food felt like embers in her mouth. Her body was on fire. Something terrible was about to happen. She wasn't wrong. She knew the moment the baby was baptized, because it was the moment her pain was the worst. She collapsed into the field on her way home and began convulsing, but this time, it was different. She reached up to her face and felt them, small, sharp, black legs emerging from the mark on her face. She screamed and pulled her hand away and watched, watched as the spiders poured from her face and into the field. Christine didn't know how long it took. I mean, anytime you have spiders emerging from your face, it's too long. But when they stopped, she experienced her first moment without pain since the first baptism. It was a plague. Spiders. Spiders everywhere. At first, it was the cows grazing. Shadows crawled up them, and they swayed and dropped. Then, the cows the farmers kept in the barns, then the horses and sheep. Up until that point, Christine had been Cassandra, crying in vain. Now though, they believed. They knew that the bill that was merely a memory for most in the village, had finally come due. At a gathering of all the men in the village, Christine told them that it wouldn't stop until the green man was given the child he was promised. You promised, one man cried. And we all benefited from, William said. They knew what they were doing when they left the trees on the hillside. He hung his head. They didn't know how far this pestilence would go. They had to honor the agreement. The men cried out that the best option was to kill Christine, then. She made the deal. The green man doesn't want me... He wants a child, this will continue until he holds the bargain fulfilled," Christine said. They, reluctantly, could see the truth in her words. None of them wanted to lose more than they already had. Okay, they would do it. Christine told them that the priest couldn't be reasoned with. He would baptize every child as soon as it was born or die trying. It had to be the husband, who was due next. The husband was a young farmer and also apparently open to a bribe. The rest of the village offered up cows and sheep, wealth in those times. He didn't need to do anything. His job was to get the priest on the night of the birth. All he had to do was delay a little bit, maybe stop off for a drink, whatever he wanted. He agreed, and it was on that night, the night of the birth, that Christine watched from outside. The priest was far off still. Tonight, her pain would end. A cry came up from the house. A baby. For the people inside the house, the door flew open. But it wasn't the hoped-for priest. It was Christine. The spider mark now consumed her whole cheek. The mother shrieked and tried to rise. The only other person in the house... The woman's elderly mother-in-law tried to stand in Christine's way, but Christine shoved her aside and tore the boy from the mother's grasp. The mother tried to fight, but she was too exhausted after labor and birth, and the story says she fell to a swoon. Christine walked out into the night as the lightning struck. The town watched as Christine marched through, singularly focused on taking the child to Church Hill, where the green man would meet her to the place where her agony would come to an end. And there he was, with a smile on his face. He stood with open arms, saying that she had made the right decision. Finally, Christine breathed and handed the child over to the green man. But because of the approaching storm, they hadn't heard another. The priest had a feeling that whole night. He knew the birth was imminent and set out unprompted meeting Hans, the husband, on the road, who said they could stop off for a drink. They still had time. The priest didn't listen and took the quickest way to the village. When he arrived, he met the crying mother-in-law and ran as fast as he could to Churchill, where he knew the green man would be waiting for the baby. The priest lunged, screaming the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He had come ready, too, with holy water. He splashed it on the baby boy, christening him before the green man was able to take him. The water, though, didn't just hit the baby. It hit Christine. It made contact with her face, with the spider mark. And where it hit, it burned her face away. The priest looked in horror at the jagged, torn, melted skin. And just underneath it, just below Christine's eye, was another eye, this one black and reflective. Christine screamed, staggering back, the priest caught the baby. The woman who had only ever wanted to save her village, who made the deal that no one else would, doubled over. Legs, four more legs, tore from her back. The hairy, barbed edges found Christine's face and arms, and tore away the skin that was left, revealing only the spider. The priest looked up to the green man, shaking his head in disappointment. But the priest was brought back to a more immediate problem, when the spider, the size of a small Doberman, bit into his arm. He tore it away, found his feet, and ran toward the village. we'll see how one spider can actually be worse than so many, but that will, once again, be right after this. The mother breathed new life when she held her baby. The priest wasn't so lucky. He excused himself, hiding his already green and bloated arm, poisoned from where the spider had bitten him. He found Hans on the way home. The husband, torn and bloated, the spider's second victim. The priest took a deep breath. He knew that he would be the spider's first. He prayed that he could make it home to put his holy items safely in their place for the one who would come after him. Little did he know that no one would come, no one that would be able to help the villagers. And the town would be plunged into a darker horror than they ever thought possible. The priest was dead. Hans was dead. Christine was missing. No one knew what was happening. But soon, it didn't matter. The spider was everywhere. They felt a crawling into the blanket in their beds. The tap, tap, tap of its feet, slinking up their backs. It dropped from trees, crawled up horses. People set traps and tried to crush it with rocks, burn it with fire, or chop it with axes. Nothing worked. It seemed like it could survive anything. No one lasted long after a bite. The area turned green and swelled, and the poison coursed, turning veins black and web-like the spider was everywhere and nowhere. No house was spared. No house, but Christine's old house. It was passed on to her cousin after William was found in a field. He wasn't just poisoned, but mauled, as if every frustration of the person the spider had once been had been taken out on the man. The knights, Hans von Stauffen and his friends, barricaded themselves in the castle, the castle the people had built Stoughlin sat toasting them with a goblet with the priest from the village he had hired as his very own Uh, he knew he was fine he regaled them with stories from the crusades that definitely were things that he had done and not just stories that he had stolen from other people the people at the table froze Stoughlin looked at them what the other knights and the priest didn't dare to move the spider was on Stoughlin's back Only the priest rose to try to beat the spider with a goblet in his hand. The others merely screamed and died when its fangs found every one of them. Only a few of the servants, who never scoffed at the peasants who built the place, were allowed to flee into the night. The fact that the knight had finally gotten what he deserved was of little comfort to the people terrorized by the monster. Put them away the young mother said when her father-in-law came around and laid out an axe, a spear, and a cudgel. Axes lost their edge, spears their point, and clubs their weight. She had another idea. There were stories, the old stories, of wise men imprisoning evil spirits in a hole in rock or wood. Then, when an iron nail was driven in, they would be trapped. Wouldn't be my first thought, but they were all pretty desperate. The young mother had nothing. Nothing except her home she didn't dare to leave. She knew it was coming for her. It was only a matter of time. The time came one night. She was roused from sleep by the spider on top of her father-in-law, the man's lifeless eyes staring up at the ceiling. The young mother steadied her gaze. The spider only took like one or two from each house. It might spare her, but she knew it would never stop unless she did something. Most ran or attacked, not her, Christine's cousin. She prayed and walked forward. The spider lunged at her. She caught it, her fingers squeezed its hairy abdomen while eight legs struck out at her. The cousin allowed herself a moment, a moment where she looked into the eyes of the monster. It was hard to describe, but when she did that, it paused, almost like it was Christine fighting against the thing in her own mind. It only lasted for a moment though, until the spider screeched and resumed slashing at the cousin with its slime and poison slathered fangs. The cousin knew if she let go, if she didn't keep the faith, that her children were dead. She closed her eyes and continued to pray. Miraculously, the spider stayed in her grasp. Though it tried to throw its weight around, or grab anything it could use as leverage, she held it. The cousin backed it up to the window post, to the hole in it. She didn't dare take a look, but the screech, the screech that sounded like a human scream, tore through her home as she pressed the arachnid on the hole. Then, somehow, her hands were empty. She gasped and opened her eyes. Spider legs, spider legs were already beginning to emerge from the too small hole. The cousin grabbed the large iron nail and hammered it into place. The window post seemed to hum, almost a purr. Then, it was silent. The cousin smiled. She smiled as she held her hand, already beginning to turn dark green. The spider had gotten her, but she, she had trapped it. She pulled herself to the door, opened it, and screamed that it was done. She trapped the monster. The people came running and she told them what happened as she scooted back to her children, still babies, crying in the chaos. She held them, comforting them as she died. people listening to Grandpa's story sat mouths agape. Then, in unison, all looked to the black window post, and the chairs scraped the wood floor as the entire room moved as far away from it as possible. Grandpa only laughed, standing and walking over. It was safe now. It was safe as long as people remembered the danger that it held. Yeah, but how do you know? One of the cousins asked. Grandpa cocked an eyebrow. Oh, he knew, because it had been opened in his lifetime. About 70 years ago, so a few hundred after Christine, the man who had inherited the house, left the dilapidated shack to his servants. They had the same idea as the cousins, take out the weird post. Barely anyone remembered the story, and nearly all of those who did considered it to merely be a legend. One of the servants, whose wife was pregnant, tore the nail out when trying to get the post from the ground. The spider, bloated with centuries of venom, emerged. It took its vengeance for its imprisonment. Where before, it would choose one or two from a house, it now wiped out whole families. It would lie in wait for funeral parties and poison everyone. There were dead in the street, no one dared to leave their houses, except for the rich man who had left the house to his servants, Christian. He knew the story. He felt like he bore the responsibility for the monster. The young mother had given birth in the meantime, and he demanded the baby from her, and took it when she was too weak to say no. He took it to Churchill, took it because he knew who would be waiting there to claim it. The spider crept toward him. Christian took a deep breath. It was time to make things right. He handed off the baby. To his son, who couldn't have been more than 10. He nodded at the boy. Just like they talked about. To the priest. Run. The boy ran, and the spider jumped off after him. But Christian caught it. He held it close, praying all the way. Held it as it bit and clawed at him, as it stabbed and shrieked. He returned it to the window post the same way he had heard of it being done before. With prayer and iron, he sent the spider back into the darkness. I was that baby, Grandpa said. He and his mother were given the house. He learned the story and watched over it. Grandpa shrugged. So there. That's the story of the window post. The evils of the past weren't dead. They were waiting waiting for people to forget the past, to think that things were over or different, but they never were. Evil is one generation from returning. If people don't learn from the past, if people forget or think the monsters were merely legends or that an evil so dark and twisted couldn't possibly be real, that was when they were in the most danger. Grandpa took a deep breath. Wow. That felt good. Now... It was their responsibility too, but he knew that they were up for the task. All right, who wants more coffee? But the house shook their heads. They didn't need coffee. Even without the coffee, no one was sleeping that night. One way to read this story is as a Christian allegory against sin and evil, how you have to be vigilant unless it returns and overwhelms. My own personal reading was the cyclical nature of history, how once the generation that dealt with the evil was gone, everyone thought that there was nothing to worry about, until it came back even worse. And just as like a fun short story idea, I love the idea of some 21st century Swiss home renovation show laughing about this weird window post that's like 400 years old. Why is it still there? And it doesn't match the house or anything. Taking a sledgehammer to it, and then releasing this ancient evil on the world anew. The creature this time is the Kanbari Niudo, from Japanese folklore. So I'm just going to cut right to the chase. The Kanbari Niudo, is a monster in the form of a hairy man, who watches you go to the bathroom, and also might lick you, while you're going to the bathroom. Now, before you ask if this is something we actually need to be worried about, like, I guess nails and fence posts now, know that this monster only ever attacks on New Year's Eve. Though, hairy dudes watching you go to the bathroom and sometimes licking you, even just one night a year, is one night too many. Because the monster only shows himself... Well, if he can help it, he doesn't show himself, but because he's only active one night a year, we know very little about him. Apparently, when he opens his mouth, he makes the sound of a cuckoo, which was thought to be a bad luck sound to hear while you're on the toilet. The monster is thought to originate from a toilet god gone rogue, which, I'll be real, I didn't realize this was a thing. Apparently, in the olden days, in cultures from Japanese to Roman, there were toilet gods they served a bunch of different roles, from keeping the user healthy to making the crops grow, toilet waste was sometimes used as a fertilizer, but that's kind of immaterial to our purposes for this creature, because the Kanbari Nyudo took his role as the toilet god and decided to get weird with it. We've already hit the high points, or the really, really low points, of what the Kanbari Nyudo does, but in addition to watching and, yes, licking people through a window, they can inflict people with bad luck and constipation, I would argue that if you have a rogue toilet god licking you while you're trying to go to the bathroom, your luck wasn't great to begin with, and the constipation thing is probably just people wanting to spend as little time in the bathroom as possible after that incident. There are ways to scare him off. Talking to him, for one, if you say, Kenbari Nyuto, hello, when you enter a bathroom on New Year's Eve, that might spook him, because he knows you know he's there, but we know so little about him though, that some sources say that that might just encourage him. My advice, start your new year off right and hold it until after the ball drops. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Myths and Legends is a registered trademark of Bardic Enterprises, LLC. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.